Man, it is, it is well with my soul. How about you? Man, this, this has been fantastic these last several nights, looking at the love that God has for us, the love that we have for one another. Tonight, of course, the, the love we need to have for our enemies, challenging. Thank you so much, Chris, for that, that message. Uh, we're going to end up in the most famous verse of all time. So please find John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and you guessed it, John 3 what? 16, but I'm going to go ahead and read a little bit before that to give us the proper context for this verse, which is the most famous verse in all of the scriptures. John chapter 3, I'll read to us verses 1 through 16, and we'll take a look at a little bit more after that. So here we are. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a word of the Lord. Well, this here is, of course, the most famous verse in the Bible. It is the most famous thing Jesus ever said. I mean, people who know absolutely nothing about the Bible, they know John 3.16. It's the number one quoted verse for Sunday school students who are told that they need to go ahead and memorize a scripture. I mean, some of them say Jesus wept, but they don't really know where that is, so they go at John 3.16. For God so loved the world. I memorized that King James Version when I was about this high. Who else did that? King James Version. Be proud. Yeah. 
Still, I mean, still when I read it, there's like some, some THs that want to just come rolling out off my tongue right there. This is the most famous thing Jesus ever said. A, a second to it is probably, uh, judge not, uh, lest you be judged. People like that one too. They like to, they, they like to throw that one out when they're, when they're caught in trouble, right? No context, have no idea where it came from, but you judge not, lest you be judged. Close second, I guess, to John 3.16. This verse has been called many things. It has been called the alphabet of grace. John 3.16, it's the alphabet of grace. It's been called the hope diamond of the Bible. It's been called the gospel in a nutshell. And then someone who must love Tolkien as much as I do said, this is one verse to rule them all. It's like the one ring to rule them all. One verse, this one verse will rule them all, the entire scriptures. It's been called the thin mint cookie of all Cookies. No, it hasn't. I made that up on the spot because of Chris's sermon. (laughs) It's not been called that until tonight. It has been called the Bible in miniature by Martin Luther, the great reformer. He called it that, the Bible in miniature. And in fact, you might not know this, but this was the very last verse that Martin Luther ever quoted before he died. He quoted it on his deathbed. His last sermon, it was super short. He referenced a psalm, Psalm 68, 19, and then he said these words, John 3, 16, on his deathbed, the very last verse he ever said. The Gideon Bible, have you ever seen those in hotels? Gideon Bible, I hope they're still there. I guess they're in some of them. If you ever look in the front of the Gideon's Bible, you know what you'll see? John 3.16 in 25 different languages. If I had just a wee bit more time last week and a little bit less stress, I was going to try to memorize a couple of those in a couple of weird languages and just go ahead and share them with you tonight, but I, I didn't. I know you're sad, right? I didn't. Go find a Gideon's Bible, open it up right at the beginning, and you will see that. This verse is famous. It has been debated. It's been at the heart of a theological debate among theologians for centuries. I had a professor in Bible college who was hardcore Arminian. Free will, everything, hardcore Arminian professors, great guy. He had a really good friend who was hardcore Calvinist. And believe it or not, they got along. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's just proof that there is such a thing as God's grace. They got along really, really well. In fact, they worked at the same place while they were both working on their master's degrees. This is a true story. I love this. They were working at the same place. It was a print shop. They worked at a print shop. My my professor, his name was Professor McKinney, hardcore Arminian, and his Calvinistic buddy, and they worked at the print shop and would take orders, and they would print things out. Well, he said that one time they got an order for a bunch of posters with, yes, you guessed it, John... 316 on it. And so their job was to print these all out, and they stood next to the printer on a conveyor belt. They stood next to it, and when they would come out, they would take them, and they would stack them, and then wait for people to come and get them. And so he said the first one rolled out with John 316, and he looked at it and was ready to grab it, and his buddy, the Calvinist, looked at it, was ready to grab it. They both looked at what it said. He said they both looked at each other, and at the same time, they both said, that verse does not say what you think it means. And this was, and they debated election, predestination, free will for the rest of the night. Must have been fantastic. It has been 
at the heart of theological debate for centuries. It is the number one verse that you see at sporting events, right? You see it at sporting events everywhere. You see signs that say John 3.16, usually by wacky people who just are holding it up. Or they got it printed on their, on their chest. I did that for you tonight. I'll just go ahead and show you. No, I didn't. I'm not going to. Made very, very popular by Tim Tebow. Remember Tim Tebow? He's still around. You guys remember him? Tim Tebow? He made that very famous. Of course, he, he had that written under his eyes. You know, he had John 3.16. Well, here's something interesting maybe you didn't know about Tim Tebow. Here's something fascinating. Several years ago, Time Magazine reported this on Tim Tebow when he was the Denver Bronco, Broncos quarterback. Is it, is it still too early to talk about the Broncos? You guys' feelings? Still a little hurt? Sorry. It's, it's, it's not Peyton Manning. It's Tim Tebow. So he prays after all these games. You guys know that. Anybody knows anything about him. And, of course, he was famous for having John 3.16 underneath his eyes, on his eye black, wearing that beneath his eyes for all these games. And on one particular game, January 8th, 2012. Some of you saw this. It was a wild card playoff game between the Broncos and the Steelers. Any Steeler fans? I didn't think so. Any Steeler fans? Any Patriot fans? Anyway, um, it was the, the, the wild card playoff football game, and they won. Tim Tebow and the Broncos, they won. Some of you saw that. They, they won. It was amazing. But then the very next day, the internet just exploded, and here's why. Here's why. Because here's Tim Tebow, who wears John 3.16 often under his eyes. When they got the stats in, they realized in this game, Tebow threw for exactly 316 yards. Three sixteen, it just was amazing. You know, and they won. But that's not all. They also discovered that Tebow set an NFL playoff record with you guessed it. Here it comes: thirty-one point six yards. Three one six three sixteen. It was absolutely astounding. And then here is just the icing on the cake for you for this particular, this particular sports illustration right here. CBS recorded that it peaked between 8 and 8.15 p.m. Eastern time. While this game was on, it peaked with a rating of, I'm not making this up, 31.6 was the rating. 3.16. Monday after the game, that was a Sunday game, Monday, the number one Google search in all the world was John 3.16, our passage for tonight. It is indeed the most famous verse in all of biblical history. Let me let me just give us a little setting here, and then I'm going to jump into a couple of things I want us to really take from John 3.16. I want you to maybe read it tonight, listen to it tonight as if it's fresh. I mean, I know you have all heard John 3.16 most of your life, so let's, let's, let's pray that, that God affects us tonight as if it's brand spanking new. So let me just give you the setting. Jesus is visited by Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an authority on the Torah. He's a teacher. In fact, Jesus calls him the 
teacher of Israel. He has a place of authority. He is a teacher. He is a Pharisee. We're told in verse 1 that he is one of the rulers of the Jews. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's come. He wants to visit with Jesus. He uses the we word, so it's, it's not just him. It's him and maybe some other Pharisee buddies, maybe some other rulers who have questions about Jesus. He's come, and he greets Jesus, and he has some questions for him. Now, this is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a little bit later in John's gospel, he'll defend Jesus just a little bit. He'll defend him, and he'll get a lot of flack for it. And then at the end of the gospel, Nicodemus is one of those who helps bury our Lord Jesus Christ after he has died, after he has been crucified. He comes with Joseph of Arimathea to help bury the body of Jesus and put spices on it. But here, Nicodemus has just come for a chat in John chapter 3. He's just come for a chat. He comes in. He recognizes that Jesus is from God. In fact, that's what he says in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He says, we know you're from God. He has no idea how far Jesus is going to take this conversation. When he meets him, he has absolutely no idea that this is going to go way further than he meant. He thought maybe this is a chat between rabbis, a chat between some teachers, a couple of Bible scholars sitting down maybe to talk about a few things. But Jesus takes it so much further. He has this greeting. We have no record that Jesus greeted him in return like, Nicodemus, I'm amazed that you came and saw me. You're so popular. You see none of that. In fact, Jesus jumps right into telling him some spiritual truths. And we see an exchange here, the difference between spiritual and natural. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And they start this conversation. Nicodemus can't keep up. Jesus is talking about spiritual things. Nicodemus can't get beyond the physical. It's like, what are you talking about, born again? Can a grown man go back into his, in his mother's womb? Wouldn't that hurt horribly? Wouldn't that be terrible? He just can't get there. He doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about spiritual stuff. So they have this dialogue back and forth. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom. You can't even see it let alone get in, unless you are born again. Totally, totally wrecked my theology when I began to realize some of these things years ago, because I just kind of thought, like, salvation was like dominoes. I'd kind of hear the gospel. I'd think about the gospel for a while. That made a lot of sense. Maybe I'd make some kind of profession of faith. Maybe I'd pray some kind of prayer, and I don't know, something, some change would happen in my life. And then as a result of believing who Jesus is and what he's done, then, then somehow then I'll become born again. I'll be a new person. I used to think like it was dominoes like that. Jesus, he flips that around and says, no, well, you, you can't get in the kingdom. You can't even see it. You can't see it unless you were born again. You, you can't see it unless something spiritual happens in your life. You can't see it unless regeneration happens and your eyes are opened to your need for this king and this kingdom. You can't even see it. So they have this conversation. It goes back and forth. Jesus says, I'm talking about heavenly things. I mean, you can't even, you can't even keep up. Like, like this is heavenly versus earthly things. And then Jesus gives him a history lesson. And this is so, oh, so important to not just this entire conference, but to this particular passage in John 3.16. He gives him a history lesson. He says to him, 
Well, look here for yourself. Verse 13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So here he gives him a history lesson. This Torah teacher gets an example from the Torah. This is found in Numbers 21. The Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, and they had, they had a hobby that, that just was a full-time hobby for them. They grumbled and complained it's all the time. They just did. It was, it was their downfall. They grumbled and complained. Aren't you glad that modern-day Christians are nothing like ancient Israelites? <laughs> Grumble, complain, what's that? They grumbled and complained. And in this particular example that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, his ears must have perked up. He's probably taught this before. I mean, he is the teacher of Israel. So he's, he's, he's probably taught this particular passage before. And in this particular example here, they were grumbling about manna. They were grumbling about food that God had miraculously provided for them to sustain them while they're wandering through the wilderness and grumbling. So he, he had provided manna for them. Now, some of you probably understand a little bit of this. You've probably, I don't know, complained about something somebody's made for you before. I mean, there's got to be at least one or two, you know, foolish husbands in here who have, um, you know, you've looked and seen what your wife has prepared. What is this? Um, this doesn't look like moms. No, you should never say that. Listen, if you've ever said that kind of stuff, Repent. Uh, immediately, and never, ever do that again. It's just, sometimes some kids do that. When my kids were much younger, they don't anymore because they have great taste, but when they were younger, they used to, every once in a while, complain about something that Autumn would make. Nothing could make my inner, like, like evilness come rising out than my kids complaining about what Autumn's made. I, I had like, an, like a supervillain voice that would come out. It'd be like, you will eat what your mother has made. Uh, you will smile as you eat it. Come on, you guys know you do this too. You will smile, you will, and then you will thank her. You know, it's, daddy loves you. It's just true, that kind of stuff. This is so much worse. You can't even compare that. Compare what I just described to what the Israelites did, this example that Jesus is sharing. It's worse. The only thing that could, could compare to that is you're sitting at the table. You got nothing. Nobody's prepared anything for you. You got no money, so you can't run out. You can't do anything at all. You have a plate that's empty sitting in front of you, and poof, God makes food appear. It's just a slice of pizza right there, something like that, whatever your favorite food is. And you just say, Ugh, you got anything else? Um, I don't like this at all. They actually say in Numbers 21 about manna, they actually say we loathe this worthless stuff. That's what they actually say. We loathe this worthless food. And it is right there at that example right there that Jesus says just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why did he say that? Because when these Israelites moaned and groaned about the food, we just, we, oh, we're sick of this. They just, they moaned to Moses all the day long about manna. We're tired of this. Why did you bring us here? There's no food. 
food, there's no water, and this worthless food, we loathe it. The Lord sent snakes. It really happened. Numbers 21. Snakes into the Israelites' camp. And many of them were bitten. And we're told many of them died. Imagine that. Maybe you shouldn't complain about what you eat anymore, right? You're thinking about that. Just a little take-home right there. Thinking about that. Snakes came in. Well, the Israelites repented. They said to Moses, we sinned. Pray for us. And Moses does. And the Lord says, take a bronze serpent. Put it up on a pole. And those who were bitten, those who were dying, if they look upon it, they'll live. That is the example that Jesus shares with Nicodemus when he announces that he himself, just like that bronze serpent, would be lifted up and that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is the background, the setting, and the context for this particular verse that we're looking at right now, John 3.16. It is a treasure trove of truth about God. So I just, I just have enough time to tell you a couple of things about this verse that I hope is very, very encouraging to you. I want it to be encouraging to us because this is indeed a treasure trove of truth about God. And here's, here's the first thing. Here we see God's affection his affection on display in John 3.16. His affection, his love, his love and affection for sinners is on display in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That's what Jesus says. For God so loved the world. Not just God loved God so loved. The phrase is intentional. It's one of intensity. It is to emphasize the love of God, the way that it is structured here. He so loves. His affection is on display. If you wondered, Christian, if you wandered into this room, if you wandered into this love conference, if you possibly made it to night three, wondering, does God love you? The answer to that is yes. Yes, he does. Intensely. He has an affection that is set upon you and me. Here we see God's affection on display. God so loved the world. God so passionately loved the world. And when Jesus says that God loved the world, he's not talking about planet Earth I'm sorry, he's not talking about your puppy dogs and your kitty cats. He's not talking about trees. He's not talking about nature. Now he made all that, so he thinks it's good, right? Thinks it's good. Planet Earth is good. You glad to live here? Are you? Would you want to live anywhere else? (laughs) Heaven. I expected somebody to say heaven. Christian conference. Somebody say heaven. Um, it's, it's, It's not talking about the world, He's not talking about the grass. He's talking about people. He's talking about people.
people, real people, with real names, with real stories, with real histories, with real baggage, with real problems, with real issues. He's talking about real people just like us. In fact, if you are a believer, if you believe in him, he's not just talking about people like us. He's talking about us. He has an affection for us. And here in John 3.16, this most famous of all famous verses, we see God's affection is on display and it is a staggering affection and it is a personal affection. God loves you. God loves me. We are the objects of divine love. That's what Spurgeon said. Objects of divine love. This entire conference has been about this. How much he loves us. We cannot overstate how much God loves us. For God so loved the world. He delights in us. God's love for us is not calculated and cold-hearted. It's not at all. It's amazing to me how, how Bible-believing Christians somehow think that God is just tolerating them. He's just putting up with them. Because gosh darn it, they just can't seem to get it right. And they have a bad day, or they have a bad week, or they have a bad month, or a couple of months stringed together, and now you've got a bad season. Or then some of you, bad year, right? Bad year. Put an S on the end of it, bad years. Am I talking to anybody? We've had some bad years. And you just can't seem to, to, to kind of get these things right, and you're fumbling and bumbling through your walk with Jesus Christ, and you think, he can't possibly love me. He must just tolerate me. I'm here to tell you the Christian life is not one of probation. It's not waiting for you to mess up. He loves you. He loves you with, we've already heard, an enduring love, an everlasting love, an abounding love. He's lavished his love upon you and upon me. He is delighted in us. God not only loves us, he even likes us. Isn't that good news? He likes us. Sometimes we preachers, you know, we give advice and we give counsel that isn't always like really found in the Bible. It's just, it's just let you in on that secret. We all do it. We all do it. We just kind of give advice. And I've been known to say this before, and I don't know. I can't really find a verse to, to match this advice, but it sounds really good. It ought to be in there if it's not. I mean, it's, I've been known to say this. The Bible commands us to love everyone, but it doesn't say that we have to like everyone. <laughs> it doesn't say that we have to like everyone, and, and you know, you got to love everybody because the truth is you don't like everyone, do you? Do you? Yeah. Some of you I know really, really well. I know there's people you don't like. You know, God, God's not like that. He not only loves us, for some crazy reason, he likes us. He delights in us. He, he enjoys us. We're not on probation. We're not on so, some kind of watch and see. If you don't really mess this up, then maybe, okay, I'll let you into heaven. God is not like that. In fact, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 say this. Paul would affirm exactly what Jesus says here in John chapter 3. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy... 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what it says. Let me read that first portion again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God loves you. God cares about you. God has a great love that he has loved you with. He is rich in mercy. And even when you were dead in your trespasses, he loved you with a great love and he made you alive. That's good news. That's really, really good news. Here we see In John 3.16, God's affection is on display. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace and a bunch of other stuff. He loved John 3.16, and he said that whenever he stuck his name in there, like we did last night with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, whenever he sticks his name in there, he says, maybe, perhaps it must be another John Newton. God must love some other John Newton. So if I stick myself in there, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that when John Newton believes in him, he should not perish but have eternal life. He says it must be perhaps some other John Newton. But then he says, no, 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 it's, it's, it's this one. Listen, God loves you. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that you are saved by the one who was lifted up on the cross, who was pierced for your transgressions, who was bruised for your iniquities? Do you believe in him? Then you fit right into John 3.16. He loves you. Here we see God's affection on display. Secondly, here we see God's action on display. God He so loves that he is compelled to do something. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave. God so loved that he gives something. He gives his only son. God's love gives. It doesn't take There is no other place where you can see such a clear difference between the world's description of love and the biblical description of love. God loves and he gives. The world says it loves and it takes. You know this to be true. Something as as silly as cake. I love cake, therefore, gimme, gimme, gimme. I love pizza, therefore, I want more. Gimme, gimme, gimme. So it can be seen in the, the world's version of love is so shallow in our culture. The way that we use the word love is so different. Biblical love gives. The culture's love, worldly love, takes. And sometimes it's silly like cake, and sometimes it's not silly at all. When young men or or young women, sin is an equal opportunity thing here, but when young men prey on the emotions of women and say, If you love me, give me some. Give. I want. You know, I love you. So I want to take something from you. So different. God 
gives. He loves and gives. The world says they love and they take. God doesn't take, he gives and he gives his only son. He doesn't give an angel saying, try harder, you bums. (laughs) He doesn't announce from heaven, this is ridiculous. Why can't you guys just get it together? He doesn't do that. He sends his son for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gives. Jesus gives. The Holy Spirit gives. Justin did an outstanding job the first night talking about the Trinitarian nature of God's love. And the only thing I would add to it is this J.I. Packer quote, which is my favorite J.I. Packer quote that I dust off and bring out every time I talk about God's love. And here it is. God is a tripersonal being, the Trinity, who so loves ungodly humans that the Father has given the Son, the Son has given His life, and Father and Son together now give the Spirit to save sinners from unimaginable misery and lead them into unimaginable glory. That's God's love. He takes sinners from unimaginable misery and he leads them into unimaginable glory. God gives. He doesn't take. Jesus explains to Nicodemus real quick here, next two verses, 17 and 18. He explains the condition of the world. He says here in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus did not come into the world to evaluate whether or not people are condemned or not. He didn't walk around saying, hmm, um, oh yeah, you are. (laughs) Uh, No, not so much here. Like, that didn't happen. No, no, no. This Verse, these verses, this famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus reveals that all are guilty. That is the condition that they are in. Everyone is guilty. Jesus did not come to condemn the world because people were already condemned. He came to rescue those who had this condition that was universal for all fall short of the glory of God. Universal. Level ground, everyone condemned. No one is innocent. All are guilty. God sends his son into the world to save people. It's astounding. It's amazing. It's marvelous. You can't even describe this kind of love that God has for sinners. What Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 16, this famous verse, It is astounding, but what he leaves unsaid is frightening. It's frightening what he leaves unsaid. He leaves unsaid that if you do not believe, you will perish. Your condemned status becomes permanent. It's frightening. The love God has for us is staggering. But what is left unsaid in verse 16, that if you do not believe in him, 
the one that God sent because he so loved the world, you will perish. You will not have eternal life. You will have eternal death. Condemned status becomes permanent. Jim, of course, spoke much of that first night. Jesus says, God sent me to do something about that, Nicodemus. He sent me to rescue people who were condemned. God's love compels him to do something about my misery. I was miserable apart from Christ. I'm not really all that nice of a guy right now, but you should have known me before I became a Christian. You would not have liked me, and I would not have liked you. So it just would have been all right, I guess. It's amazing that God saved me out of my misery. He acts. He does something. Here we see God's action is on display. He gives his son over to a death on a cross. He crushes his own son because he loves miserable sinners. Man, that ought to get you up in the morning. It is better than Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and not much is, but this is. He loves miserable sinners, so he crushed his own son. Jesus bore the full wrath of God that you and I deserve. This is not some grudging response to a world that has gone to hell. This is the plan from a loving God. This is how he saved sinners. It's how he saved you. It's how he saved me. Just as that serpent was lifted up so that when those Israelites would look, and if they looked, they would live, so Jesus is lifted up at the cross, bearing my and your guilt and shame. The innocent bears our condemnation, and we are pardoned, and we go free. Paul says it like this, For, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what he did for us at the cross. The guilty are pardoned. Why? Why? Why are the guilty pardoned? For God so loved. That's why. John 3.16. That's why. That's why the guilty are pardoned. That's why. Because Jesus took mine and your sin and gave us eternal life. There's this story, I don't know the source of it, I've heard it many different places, of a baptism happening in China, and a pastor was going to baptize this young woman, and you know, like pastors do, you got to make sure people's theology is straight, right? I mean, you got to do that, you got to kind of ask some questions, some probing questions, now let's make sure you believe in the Trinity, let's make sure some stuff, it's, it's what we do, it's our job. You know, we just got to make sure of all that kind of stuff. So this pastor actually says to this lady while she is there ready to be baptized, he says, he says, do you believe that Jesus had sin? And she says, yes. And he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> um, so he's thinking maybe she just didn't quite understand the question. You know, we've got a little problem here. So he repeats the question, do you believe that Jesus had sin? And she answers, yes, he had sin. And he's probably thinking if he was like me at that moment, he's probably thinking, I got to get her out of the water. We got to have another class. Surely there's a John Piper book she has to read somewhere, somehow. We got to get this thing straight. And so he's trying to correct her. And she says, he had sin. He had mine mine. 
Well, upon that answer, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Boom. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. John 3, 16 teaches us all of that. So let me just, let me close. I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. Let me just share with you a couple of thoughts that I've been thinking about this whole conference, just so we can end. Man, I, through all these sermons, through everything that's been shared, I've been thinking how glad I am that this love is unquenchable that God has for us. Unquenchable. His love is unquenchable. His love for me is not conditioned on how well I'm loving him. Praise Jesus. You know, it's, it's not that way. It's not like if I'm, if I'm loving people more and I'm somehow loving God more, then he's going he's gonna to love me no, more. No, that's not how it works. It is his astounding, staggering love for me that even makes me able to love other people. That's just, that's just the truth of it. So, so he's, he's not up in heaven loving me more or loving me less depending on how well I'm doing today, how well I'm doing this week, how well I do in my entire Christian life. It's not based on that. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. His love is unquenchable. He pursued me, and I'm so grateful for it. He pursues me still. Also, his love is inexplicable. That's what I was thinking about. All these sermons, all these these pastors who are excellent at opening the word of God and sharing these thoughts with us. We're just scratching the surface. I mean, it's just amazing God's love for us. We do not have the proper vocabulary to fully explain God's love for us. We don't have it either. We're just scratching at the surface, but it's real. You can count on it. You can bank on it. He loves you. And then finally, his love is permanent. It's eternal life. It's eternal life. It's what he says in John 3.16. It's permanent. You are forever free. You are forever forgiven. That's pretty good news, right? You are forever forgiven. You are forever free. You have eternal life. You are forever loved. Other people's love for you might fade. Your love for other people's might fade. God's will never fade. He has a permanent love for you and for me and as should be fitting, I'm going to let the Word of God be the last thing I say. Romans 8, 38 and 39, very familiar passage. This is the conclusion of our love conference with these astounding words. The Apostle Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And everybody said, Amen. Let me pray for us, and then I'll dismiss us. Father, thank you for this incredible love you have for us. Thank you for these last three nights as we've gathered here listening to your word be preached, our hearts opened up to this amazing love that you have for us. I just pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by just how deep and marvelous your love is for us. May that be the effect that this conference has on everyone in this room. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.